0: canva talking presentations record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere anytime start designing today at canva.com designed for work
1: design matters will be back in a few weeks with new episodes in the meantime we wanted to replay this interview from pre-pandemic times from may of 2018
2: When anybody in a group or in a room tries to take a risk that helps people meaningfully connect despite the awkwardness, I'm always very moved and very grateful.
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Priya Parker about meetings and gatherings and why so many of them don't work. In so many group contexts,
2: we tend to follow scripts, whether or not we want to.
1: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: We're more connected than ever, but it doesn't really feel that way. We talk on the phone less than we used to, but we spend more hours in front of screens or plugged into earbuds. We're constantly interacting, but not always communicating on a meaningful level. We're busy, but we're not often getting a lot done. Priya Parker aims to change that. In her new book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters, Parker sets out to make our lives more productive and our interactions more meaningful. With life's distractions, Parker reminds us that human contact is what really matters. Trained as a conflict resolution mediator, Priya has worked all over the world with NGOs, companies, and universities. She is the founder of Thrive Labs, where she helps organizations embrace and cultivate their sense of purpose. Today, we're going to talk about her new book and her passion for purpose. Priya Parker, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you for having me. Priya, you've described yourself as the daughter of a mother who hails from Indian cow worshipers in the ancient city of Varanasi, while your father's family is from American cow slaughterers in South Dakota. That's a lot of cows in your lineage. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. It's funny. It's it's no wonder that I ended
2: up in the field of conflict resolution. My mother comes from India. She comes from a family that is Hindu and theosophist, which is not Hinduism. And they're vegetarian, and they have traveled all around India because of my grandfather's job, but basically come from a tradition where, in Hinduism, the cow is a sacred animal. And, you know, my, if my family was listening, they would make sure to correct me that they're not technically cow worshippers. It is a sacred animal because it is the vehicle for one of the gods. And my father comes from, um, from South Dakota by way of Iowa, and to this day, my grandmother, who's no longer living, the Ida
0: Millers, are farmers in Wagner, South Dakota. Your parents met in Iowa. They fell in love, married, had you in Zimbabwe, and worked in fishing villages across Africa and Asia. What was it like growing up in such an international setting?
2: You know, when you, I
0: think when you grow up
2: in any type of context, you don't realize that it's special because it's just what you... No, and um, it wasn't really anything different for me until we actually moved to the United States. And I remember um, being at a summer camp, and kids started making fun of me and saying that I spoke English with an accent. And it never occurred to me that I had an accent. And I ran home and you know cried, not because I was upset that I had an accent, but because it was clearly a bad thing to have based on how they were treating me. And my father looked at me and he said, Priya, everybody
0: has an accent. Mm, That's wonderful. (laughs) You don't have an accent, though.
2: Um, Well, when we moved here, I um, had come from Indonesia and then um, The Hague for six months. And my accent, at least as I um, was told, was kind of a jumble of a lot of different things. And I think like anything that you kind of do over time, I came young enough where it kind of got stamped out of me. And I now, you know, speak as an American. My father is, you know, American born and raised. And so it's also the lilt that I heard at home. But I came at a young enough age where
0: because I stayed through college, it became an Americanized, you know, twang. (laughs) Your dad got a doctorate in philosophy with a major in watershed management from the University of Arizona with a 296-page thesis with a whopping name, which I'm going to try to share. (laughs) I don't even know this. (laughs) (laughs) It's titled The Effect of Spatial Variability on Output from the Water Erosion Prediction Project Soil Erosion Computer Model. Uh, He is not a brander. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He also worked for the Peace Corps and the United Nations World Health. Um, Your mother is an advisor and writer who has decades of experience at the World Bank, the U.N., and other organizations. How did your incredibly prolific parents influence you? They influenced me very deeply. Most
2: specifically, my mother influenced me in the way that she gathered. My father describes himself as a hydrologist, and my mother describes herself as a cultural anthropologist, and the reason they lived in fishing villages was because it was the Venn diagram of poverty and water. Um, and my father studied and and built sanitation systems, and, and my mother basically began to work in villages to uh, understand and help them grow in the ways that they wanted to. So what's now called participatory development, or even human-centered design, didn't have a language back then. And she would work in villages to develop very simple games and techniques that would bring villagers together, often when a large amount of aid was likely to come in or they were experiencing great change, and trying to figure out how do you actually do development, um, I say that in quotes, in a way that puts the people affected by that development at the center of the conversation. And so from a very early age, the conversations around my dinner table were almost always about how do you gather in a way that puts the
0: people involved at the center of their decisions. Your parents eventually divorced in Virginia and both remarried. And with joint custody, you pinged between their households, which you've described as toggling back and forth between a vegetarian, incense-filled Buddhist, Hindu, New Age universe and a meat-eating, conservative, twice-a-week, church-going, evangelical Christian realm. What was that like for you?
2: (laughs) Um, a little bit schizophrenic. You know, my parents divorced and very quickly they remarried. Um, I mean, I guess in the course of my life, very quickly within two or three years. And I toggled back and forth every Friday afternoon. I would pack up my stuff at one house. And when I was younger, one would, the other parent would pick me up and we'd drive just a mile to the other house, but it was another universe. And, you know, I was fully part of both families. I'm an only child. And so I didn't have any siblings to kind of co witness the experience you know, with me. And so there was no one who was part of both worlds with me. And I became a bit of a chameleon. Years later, my husband would joke uh, that he when I'm with my mother's family and somebody sneezes, I would say, bless you. And when I'm with my father's family and someone sneezes, I would say, God bless you. Interesting. And these were things I didn't even realize until I had a kind of common witness in my life to point it out. And for most of my kind of teenage years, I tried to figure out how I could
0: fit into both places. As you were going back and forth between households, you've written about how you remember learning about Republicans and Democrats at school. And you asked your father which one your family was, and he said, we are so glad you asked, we're Republicans We believe in the values of this country. And when you asked your mother the same question, she and your stepfather said, we're Democrats. You've since said that is the story of the essence of how you grew up. They lived a mile apart, but they lived a world apart. And you mentioned it before, but... Do you think this is what set you on an early path toward conflict, mediation and seeing all sides of a story or an argument or a debate? Absolutely. Um, And I remember, you know, the Republican Democrat comment. I I remember
2: it because both of them, even more than what they said, they were relieved that I was asking and relieved that, that they could almost. And this wasn't explicitly said, but kind of protect me from the other side. And when my mother said, oh, we're we're Democrats, I remember thinking, I think my dad said the other one.
0: Like, <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you did this? I
2: was probably 12 or 13. Um, and I remember thinking, here are two different people who both feel very passionate about the specific identity as well as passionate about not being the other one. And both are my parents. And from that day on, I kind of realized that I needed to figure out why they felt so passionately um, about things that they believed that the other side was, frankly, completely wrong about. And, you know, I remember I, one week I'd be reading uh, Thich Nhat Hanh with my mother, a Vietnamese monk, about presence and mindfulness. And the next week I would literally be reading Ann
0: Coulter because that was the book my stepmother would give me. Wow. That is schizophrenic. But that's amazing to have that kind of range. I mean, you did not grow up in an echo chamber, that's for sure. I
2: did not grow up in an echo chamber. And I think for, you know, before college in particular, my my kind of modus operandi was to survive, to blend in. And survive is a strong word, but I'm, I'm kind of using it that way. Um, and to figure out how I could belong to both places. And the way I could belong broadly was to listen and to speak up when I felt that it was hearable and also to often not say anything. And it was really when I was in college and I had some time away, I think, like so many of us, that I began to ask the question, not just what is my inheritance um, and where do I belong, but who do I want to be?
0: It was first at UVA where you went to college where you started being asked, where are you from? Mm-hmm. That was something that you had never really heard a lot before. They actually would ask, what are you? What are you? Yeah. (laughs) As if you're not a person? Well, that's
2: how it kind of sounds. But it was at least then when, you know, this is 2000, uh, 2000, 2001, it wasn't as offensive as it sounded, sounds today, I think, in part because of the way our, our language has changed and kind of political correctness. But basically, people would want to know what race I was. And I didn't understand the question at first. Um, I thought they were asking, what year am I? Or am I a, you know, at UVA, you say, a first year or your first year? And I quickly realized that they were asking, no, what is my racial and ethnic background? And that it mattered because it helped them place me. So I remember, um, you know, speaking of gatherings, freshman orientation at UVA, one of the first things that happened. At least then is a massive pool party, um, and I walked in uh, into the pool, Olympic-sized pool, and at the front of the pool on the right side was broadly white students, and at the back of the pool was basically black students, and I walked in and I realized that I had to physically choose a side, otherwise I'd you know fall into the water, and f- for me, particularly growing up all over the world it was a very stark visual that i don't even know if other people realized you know as explicitly and so i learned very quickly that the that the correct answer to that question was i'm i'm biracial i'm half white half um indian and even that was a complicated answer because people would say you know are you american or are you indian and i'd say well, I'm Indian. My, well, my mother's half Indian. so I'm half Indian. And my father's white from Iowa. And so I'm white American. And, and very quickly, I realized that to have a conversation about race, you kind of had to have the right language before we could even understand each other
0: because we were using different phrases and language. We were offending each other. This led you to founding the Sustained Dialogue program at UVA and then after in New Delhi, India, where you conducted sustained dialogues in the country on behalf of the Dalai Lama Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about what sustained dialogue is for our listeners and what motivated you to do that at that point in your life? Yeah, absolutely. Just one correction. It is the Dalai Lama's Peace
2: Foundation, but it's technically called the Foundation for Universal Responsibility. Um, So sustained dialogue is a group process. You could even call it a communication technology that helps people um, who are on different sides of some kind of conflict come together and see if they can transform their underlying relationships. It was a process that was designed by a diplomat. A man named Harold Saunders. He goes by Hal Saunders. He he actually passed away last year at the ripe old age of 85. And he was assistant secretary to Kissinger, um, to Henry Kissinger. And he was part of the team that drafted the Camp David Accords. And one of the things that he found after serving in government for multiple administrations was that while there are certain things that governments can do, like forge peace or make peace treaties, that if you don't actually change hearts and minds on the ground, nothing actually changes between the perception of the citizens. And so He left government and started to run some of the longest-running backroom dialogues between citizens of influence during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. And these groups of kind of 20 influential citizens that had the ear of the government but were free to speak their own mind would gather, often three days at a time, three times a year, over 13 years, to see if they could— fundamentally changed their relationship as Soviets and Americans. And as they did and built trust, begin to see if that could have ripple effects through each of their um, administrations. And he basically realized that when a group is committed to coming together for a specific purpose over time, you can begin to transform the underlying relationships, which has a potential to transform the conflict. And so um, in 2001, he was a trustee at Princeton, and Princeton had his own race problems, which have been well documented. Two students at Princeton, David Tukey and Teddy Namaroff, were interested in starting Sustained Dialogue at Princeton, and they did that. And as a freshman at University of Virginia, I, I learned about how Saunders work, and they agreed to basically train us um, to figure out how do we actually launch Sustained Dialogue at UVA. And we actually launched it. We sent the letter to the students and administrators to launch Sustained Dialogue on September 10th, 2001.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: Yeah. So September 11th happened, obviously, the next day. And while it was just a letter, part of the power, I believe, of an invitation is that it creates a container in people's minds. And so when September 11th happened and there was this deep desire to gather Sustained Dialogue became one vehicle to do that with. And does UVA still have that program in place? It still has that program in place um, 15 years later. That's incredible. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's spread now to um, more than a dozen schools across uh, college campuses across the country, as well as in uh, in Zimbabwe and South Africa. And one of the things that really connected with me at the time was that it made me realize that conversation and group conversation was something that you can get better at. That conversation and that the way you gather is not just something that is inherited or kind of happens or you trust the chemistry in the room, but that there are actual
0: specific things you can do to create a gathering that's transformative for people. You went on to get a dual masters of business administration and a master's of public administration at Harvard Kennedy School and MIT Sloan. At that point in your life, what were you hoping to do professionally? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, well, like most things in my
2: life, I, I'm almost always split identity. So, I <laughs> to choose one program would have <laughs> been to end that um, to end that trend. But I, you know, I spoke with the mentor at a time, and she said you know, I was debating between actually getting a PhD in peace studies and conflict resolution um, or going to public policy school. And she said to me, she's actually in the book, Rhonda Slame, she said, go to public policy school, because you've already done many of the things you've spent your the last you know 8 years kind of learning what you would learn in peace building what you need to understand in these rooms is how power works and how systems work and to be in the room where it happens and that is going to happen much more at a public policy school so that you understand how governments think and how decisions are made and so i actually first just went to the kennedy school and then the financial crisis happened and um, at the time the financial crisis happened, you could say it was a failure of policy and regulation. But all of the panels on the financial crisis ha- happened on the other side of the river at the, at the business school. And so Kennedy students who study policy for a living were literally go- walking across the, the river. This is in Cambridge to go understand, you know, why are we in the biggest crisis of our generation? And so I applied to business school in part because I understood that in this day and age, you need to
0: understand how business works you mentioned that you wanted to understand how power works mm-hmm. is there an easy answer to the question how does power work <laughs> no <laughs> okay figured <laughs> figure we'll get to that in the conversation today but just in case there was an easy answer i wanted to ask it
2: but i will i will say one thing that i learned is that power is not a bad thing it's something that happens anytime two or more people come together And one of the best definitions I've heard of power in a group context um, is from the Christian theologian Paul Tillich. And he describes power as an individual's ability to self-actualize. And it's a controversial definition because Hitler was Mm. practicing power and it can be evil. But he talks about the two twin forces in all group dynamics and all group life as being power and love. And he defines power as the ability to self-actualize and love as the desire for the separated to become whole. And he says that power without love is abusive, but love without power is anemic. And in all group life, whether a marriage or a friendship or a group of friends or a, a nation, you need to actually have both of these things in
0: balance. It sounds like that's also something that requires empathy to know the difference. Deeply. Your thesis, when when you were finishing school, your thesis was titled, The Souls of 1%, a report on the emerging leaders of the millennial generation, (laughs) in which you discussed the phenomenon known as FOMO, fear of missing out. Around that time, you predicted that FOMO would ripple throughout culture, which indeed it has, (laughs) attaining such visibility in the cultural lexicon that it was added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Was it really? Yeah, in 2016. (laughs) How were you so ahead of the curve on that? Kind of cultural conversation. Well, I saw it around
2: me, and I experienced it myself. I um, I realized that in my specific dual degree program, so these were people who were both obtaining a business degree and a policy degree, who came into this program wanting to learn the tools of business and policy to go back out and create you know social movements and cultural movements. And over the course of three years, a majority of them ended up going into banking and consulting. And I almost fell into that trap myself. I started interviewing with McKinsey's and the BCG's. And the more skills I got in these programs, frankly, the more insecure I became. Why? Um, Why? Because you kind of enter this subculture that is telling you that you need to keep learning. And that, and this is part of the kind of success of the of the companies, that the way to keep learning is to go into consulting because you are exposed to all of these different fields and learn how to think and learn how to solve problems and that this degree is not enough. And it becomes a recruiting mechanism that we all kind of start to believe. But the second thing I saw was when I was, you know, this is around dinner table conversations with my friends, with my peers, and we were all kind of debating what to do. A huge reason a number of us were going into you know, consulting or banking um, was because it was the choice that would be safe while preventing us from making a true choice. It would keep doors open for longer. It would keep us from making potentially the wrong decision of going into healthcare or going into farming or agriculture or something specific that we may then want to back out later from. And I saw this as FOMO, and and another term that someone told me in one of the interviews, FOBO, the fear of better opportunities, um, <laughs> the fear of better options. Oh God! And so this this thing that we'd learn in our accounting classes or our financing classes, which is the best option is to always preserve options, began to
0: infiltrate our moral choices. How did you decide at that point what you wanted to do next? You do so much work today advising people on how to find their purpose. How did you then find your own? Um I fainted on a plane.
2: <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I um I was just coming back from a summer internship where I was pretty miserable. And I was going back to graduate school for my third year and, um, and I, I, I collapsed on a plane and I had to be taken off, you know, in a stretcher and my heart rate fell. And, um, you know, my fiance at the time, now husband, got off the plane with me and we went to the hospital. And when I finally came back to school and kind of got checked out by my doctor, he said, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you. Like your vitamin D levels are a little low, but <laughs> just get a little sun. And he said, can I can I say something? And I said, Yeah. And he said something like this, is at least my memory of it. He said, You know, you've been running through your twenties, and you've been on war footing, and your army has simply run out of supplies, and I strongly suggest that you take some time off. And as I talked to him and and kind of shared some of my experiences, I said, You know, I, I was doing. Conflict resolution and facilitation for my you know early years and I, and through my twenties and I loved it and I've now over the last two or three years become extremely stressed out, kind of forcing myself into these kind of business models. And he said, I, I take some time off, and so I did. And I I was very fortunate I was able to, but I took a semester off and kind of cleared everything for my life. I also felt very physically weak. I needed I needed physical rest, and. During that time, I began to be able to kind of clear away a lot of the noise, and I worked with coaches and with, with therapists, and, but also just very, very simply cleared out a lot of the cultural norms and voices um, and realized that the thing that I most loved to do was facilitate. And so I remember making an agreement to myself with some help, with some advisors, that I would facilitate 100 visioning labs in my living room before the end of the year. And um, I began to, in part because I was going through this, it just started with one-on-one with my friends. I would do these three-hour sessions with friends on two pillows in a living room where I'd guide them through a series of different practices. Some of them I learned from sustained dialogue. Some of them I learned through my own um, creative process to help them get clear on their purpose because I was suffering so deeply with getting clear on mine. And I as I started to do this, I would literally do three hour sessions three days a week, from three to six in my living room every day for free. and it would build my craft. And so one of the things that you know the 10,000 hour you know rule, um, through through creating these experiences for my friends and seeing them kind of at least telling me they were having breakthroughs, they'd start sharing with their friends. and many of the people in those programs, you know ran, Startups, And so they'd bring me into their startups and start facilitating conversations with their startups. And um, I started realizing that this is what I love to do and is my gift. And so um, if I actually honored that gift and didn't uh, think that it wasn't enough
0: or embarrassed by it, that this could actually be a very powerful tool. And so you started Thrive Labs. And so I started Thrive Labs. Before we get to that, I just want to ask you one question about your internship that you referenced. Was that the internship with Barack Obama?
2: (laughs) No, that one I loved. Okay.
0: (laughs) So you did an internship and a fellowship at the White House in the Office of Social Innovation in uh, President Obama's administration. What was that like? It was awesome. It was
2: heady. It was kind of you know the jazz years, if you will. It was the summer, uh, I believe, of 2009, and I was interning in the Office of Social Innovation, um, which was a new office. So every president um, has a tradition that started with Johnson, I believe, where they create a new office. Um, and this one was uh, the Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation. And I was actually part of the office launch. And it was an exciting moment because we were able to kind of have a coming out party. And um, there was a lot of conversation about what should this coming out party look like. And um, they invited, as as the White House can with convening power, 100 leaders in the field of social innovation. And so you had the heads of foundations and the heads of NGOs, you know, Teach for America and Meetup and all sorts of different Wikipedia. And, And I was thinking, my goodness, what an amazing opportunity to have these people together in a room and not just witness and mark a moment, but what could we do with them? I had designed. I'm a facilitator, so I designed something dynamic, and I suggested doing a goldfish um, bowl where President Obama could be in the center, and we'd sugge- we'd bring in you know 12 leaders at a time with the other 100 sitting in a big circle around and having a live, dynamic conversation about the future of the field. And I was getting very excited, and everybody around just looked more and more nervous, and they just said, uh, you know, we can't. We have to have something scripted. We we don't know what might happen if it's if it's unscripted. It was an incredible moment because of the fact that the White House was honoring and acknowledging that this matters. But from the structure of the gathering, to me, um, it was a missed opportunity.
0: You talk about this in your new book. It's a a wonderful story, a little bit heartbreaking, but a really (laughs) vivid story. Um, And your new book is called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. What made you decide to write this particular book?
2: I wrote this book after going to gathering after gathering, sometimes my own included, but dinner parties, conferences, birthday parties, anytime people would come together and almost always have wonderful people in the room um, and leaving feeling like, frankly, it was a missed opportunity, that there was not the level or depth of connection that could have been given who was actually there. And one of the reasons I believe this happens is because so much of our kind of gathering wisdom, particularly in the U.S., has somehow been associated with the realm of etiquette and flowers. And even, you know, if you look at Instagram, in part because it's a visual medium, so much of of gathering kind of, you know, the gathering industrial complex is around literally what does a table look like? And we've, we've centered gathering around things rather than people. And I wanted to write a book that centered gatherings around people. We have not thought about what actually creates magic between live, breathing people in a room. And I set out to change that.
0: What does create magic in a live, breathing room? Purpose.
2: So uh, gatherings that work, for the most part, in my mind, tend to have some kind of specific purpose. They know why they're gathering. And everything kind of falls from there. So. For example, a very simple example, you know, is a wedding. I've been to dozens of weddings, I imagine you have as well. And many and even when you think about a wedding, you know, there's very few that kind of stick out. Many of them kind of blend into the rest. And the ones that stick out are the ones where the couple made a specific, disputable decision that perhaps upset some people about what this gathering was for, what this wedding was for, and who it was for. And so what I mean by that is, you know, in a wedding, often it's sort of, you kind of laugh at how many kind of fights they can cause in the in the lead up to the wedding and planning. But one thing is, you know, often there's a, si- there's a question about size, like how big should this wedding be? And should Should we invite the, um, you know, my mother's colleague or uh, my year old, you know, college buddy? And this argument is actually a proxy war as to what is this wedding actually for? Is it to honor the parents or is this to celebrate kind of the coming together of new communities and to build a tribe? And those are two very different, you know, weddings.
0: And that's a conflict resolution you have to manage.
2: (laughs) It is. (laughs) And I would say by managing it to have the conversation ahead of time, first within the couple and then usually within among the parents of what is this wedding for? So one of the examples, and this is an Indian example in the context of a wedding, is even when you think about the ritual or the rites in a wedding... In you know, in a Christian context, it's the bride walking down the aisle with her father. The father literally gives her over to the husband in a heterosexual marriage. Um, in India, in in Hindu weddings, there's a tradition of walking around a fire. It's called the Faras. And if you actually read the script in the faras, many of them basically have assumptions where the woman's role is to take care of the child. And there's very specific assumed roles that many modern couples in India don't actually want. But yet the ritual of the wedding that their parents and their grandparents and their great grandparents all took a part of has meaning in it. You know, that image walking around the fire is often the image that is the photograph, you know, plastered on walls for generations at a time. And so part of thinking about a uh, purposeful wedding is to think about how do you create a ritual that both honors your past, but also reflects your values. And it's a very complicated question.
0: How do you get at what the intrinsic purpose of an event or a gathering is?
2: Well, you start by just asking, why do I want to have this gathering? And many Gatherings suffer from a purpose confusion because we assume that a category is a purpose. So a birthday party is to celebrate my birthday, or a wedding is to get married, or a team offsite is to bond the team. And the first thing I always say, and I try to do this myself, is to actually pause and say, why do you want to have a birthday party? Or what is it that you need in your life right now? And how might a gathering serve that? And so one of the things that happens when we skip a purpose is that we assume a specific form for a gathering without thinking about what we actually need. And so to start if you're, for example, wanting to do a pool party or neighborhood potluck, I would say, why do you want to have a pool party? And and someone might say, well, because it's the beginning of summer. And say, well, why do you want to invite your neighbors? And they may say, well, it's nice to get together. And So keep asking why. Why is it nice to get together? Well, we don't see each other that often. Well, why does it matter for you to still see each other? I mean, it kind of gets annoying, but I really keep asking why. And then someone might say, well, because... I want my children to be in a community where they know their neighbors and where they believe that strangers aren't scary. And then
0: you have an animating purpose. And that then helps determine the energy of the gathering. The energy of the gathering and even more so who should be there.
2: So if I say I want to have a neighborhood where strangers aren't scary – All of a sudden, it may make sense to invite neighbors that I never met before for my pool party versus the ones that I've known for a decade. Mm. Or both? Or both. So part of the reason purpose helps is because, you know, I joke in the book that you should use purpose as your bouncer. That purpose should be this animating force that helps you decide who should be there. And one of the things, another element of powerful kind of transformative gatherings are those that are willing to exclude well. What does that mean? So one of the things that gatherings I think sometimes suffer from, ironically, is over-inclusion. And it comes from a spirit of generosity. You know, again, I do this myself. um, Sometimes it's kind of embarrassing or awkward to not invite, you know, so-and-so because they all know about it. But one of the things that gives gatherings animating life is when people are there because they— serve the purpose of the gathering. One of the examples that I recently heard from a friend was he was invited by his 80-year-old grandmother to come for her birthday party. And all of his adult cousins realized that they got this invitation, but there was one catch, which was the adult spouses and the children were not invited. And this caused, you know, a mild uproar um, among the cousins. They're all spread across geographically. They don't always see each other. The spouses were like, why aren't we invited? The children, You know, well, it was great. So we're now on babysitting duty, whether they're the male spouse or the female spouse. But it was their grandmother, and she's getting old. So, you know, she had some clout, and they went. And I spoke with my friend when he came back, and he was thrilled with this gathering. And he was so moved by it. And he said, you know, my grandmother and her wisdom gave us a gift. And that was the ability to spend time with my cousins as an adult for the first time without playing the role also of spouse, without also playing the role as parent, with just being able to play the role of a cousin to say, what does this look like to have an adult relationship? Because the last time we did this was as children. And it was the most beautiful
0: experience because there was a specific purpose and there was space given to it. I have two questions about this. The first I can already see the questions in the social etiquette (laughs) column in the New York Times on Sunday. (laughs) I just read Priya Parker's book, and I'd like to have a party, and I only want to invite so-and-so. What do I tell the other people that are invited so that their feelings aren't hurt? Yeah. You tell them the purpose of the party. In some cases, that might be a difficult
2: conversation. So if the purpose of your party is to have a party where the people who bring out the best in you are there? You don't always have to make your purpose explicit. By the way, this is just you know for for yourself as a design principle. You know, I, I can give this example of my own life that I my parents and my in laws were going to meet for tea, and an aunt was visiting, and um, it happened to be that she happened to be in town that weekend. It was also her birthday, and she was visiting for but a, a very complicated situation, and um, she had just assumed that she would join this tea. And my fiancé and I at the time loved the aunt but didn't want her there because this was this very unique opportunity for these two families to meet and spend time together. And part of being a generous host is if you're if people are in the room, you pay attention to them. And if people are in the room, you pull in the person whose least belongs. And so part of the problem of having an aunt there is that not that she's going to be quiet and not take up space, but if you're gathering well, you're including her intimately in the conversation. And so it frankly, it became a conflict because it actually meant her staying at home or not. And we had to say, like, the purpose of this very unusual time together, we don't live in the same city, is for our parents to get together and and you're not a parent. And that wasn't a parent. (laughs) And so I think part of gathering with intention means having difficult conversations. You know, I, I got an um, email the other day from a friend who has read the book and she uh, was hosting a gathering in her context of work and, and some people knew about it and asked if they could come. And she had this moment and she'd read the book and she took a deep breath and she wrote back and said uh, to the person why they were having a gathering and why that person wasn't invited. And she talked about the purpose and she did it with care and she did it with transparency. And one of the things that happened was that next time that she has a gathering and that person's invited, they actually then know if you're gathering over time that the invitation is purposeful, intentional, and you
0: want them to be there. With all the conflict resolution that you've done, both internationally as well as between individuals, Are there any universal elements that tend to be at the core of all conflicts? And is there a common solution, if so? (laughs) It's a million-dollar question.
2: You know, many conflicts come down to a disagreement or a threat around needs, values, interests, and identity. And the conflicts that I'm most interested in and have always been attracted to are conflicts over identity. I, I, I'm running these experiences called Master Classes in the Art of Gathering where I gather together 50 or 100 or 250 people who are all part of some community and create this live experience where for an hour I kind of build community among them and then for an hour I reverse engineer the process. And I did this a couple of days ago at a company in New York and one woman shared this example that in college she was part of a feminist group and there were republicans and democrats in this feminist group and at some point the women democrats decided and basically said you can't be a republican and a feminist it's a paradox it's an anomaly and there was this huge conflict and the group basically eventually fell apart the republican women left and it was a core conflict about identity which is what does it mean to be a feminist and what are your core values And you see this at the macro level as well in the American conversation. You know, uh, last year when we had the Women's March, one of the core – I remember organizers kind of uh, writing about and and parts that they were nervous about was whether or not there would be conflict between – pro-life women and the marchers. Um, and even now there's a roaring debate about whether or not you can be pro-life you know, and a feminist. And these are the conversations to me that are juicy and fascinating and have so much depth because it's extremely complicated and it comes down to a core difference of values. How do you
0: bridge those differences? I without think, without people necessarily feeling like they have to change their mind about their, the way they think. Yeah. I think one thing
2: is you start building ways of being together that unite people across other types of identity. So what I mean by that is they may disagree on this specific issue, but they may bond as hockey players or they may bond as parents or they may bond as – and sometimes it's – the more unique identities that they wouldn't think they would have mm. so they may and and that have some kind of vulnerability in them they may bond as people who have experienced estrangement in their life or they may bond as people who have had a near death experience and to me one of the most powerful elements of transformative gatherings are when you can have conversations that get people out of their fixed identities you know, one of the things that Hal Saunders, my mentor, spoke about in terms of transforming relationships is he identified identity as all of the experiences over the course of your life up until this very moment that shapes who you are. And what I loved about that definition was that there are, yes, some perhaps fixed elements of your identity, but even those are changing, you know, gender or race. And and, and some of the most, you know, interesting conversations today are around what is fixed identity, But within the definition that he had, there's also a lot of space that says there's a possibility that in this moment I'm willing to expand or change or question or reimagine some element of my identity. And to me, gatherings become profound when you can start getting to that point in the conversation.
0: How do you encourage people in those situations to be more vulnerable, to open their hearts a little bit?
2: First of all, you have to want to. So whenever I do any type of gathering, particularly professionally, and um, I'm invited in to a a company or to an organization or to a political movement, um, first of all, I always go when I'm invited. I never force myself in because you can't force people to be vulnerable. Um, It's actually close to abusive to force people to be vulnerable. But when people have gotten to a point where they realize that the way they're doing things aren't working and they're curious about another way, that's when you can have a crack. So, for example, one of the things I always say before a meeting where people are coming together to talk about a topic that may be difficult or taboo or contentious is to have a dinner the night before that has nothing to do with the topic. And one of the things that I do is this dinner format that I write about
0: called 15 Toasts. I was gonna ask you about (laughs) that, it's magnificent.
2: And um, it's this kind of fun model that a colleague and I, a friend of mine, Tim Lebrecht and I, kind of designed uh, on the fly with input from my husband, where we were at the World Economic Forum meetings, this is the Global Agenda Council meetings in Abu Dhabi, and realized that during the day, when people actually meet, there's a lot of meeting but not a lot of connection, sort of what you said at the beginning of our conversation. And we thought, what if we could design a dinner the night before that would prime people to show up differently the next day? And so we, we invited 15 people from all of these different councils. The age spread was, I think, 21 to somebody in their 80s, half men, half women, people from all over the world. We had a theme that we wanted to ask people was what did they believe a good life is? And the night before, I got very nervous. The night before the dinner, I got very nervous because I thought, how are we going to actually have a conversation with 15 people about this topic? Are they going to talk? Are they? Is it going to be interesting or strange? And I realized I needed some structure. I needed to design for meaning. And so um, – My husband and I were actually sitting in like a dimly lit mall having lunch and kind of started riffing a bit and came up with this with this kind of idea that was we'd ask everybody in the room at some point of the night to stand up old school style, ding their glass and give a toast to the theme. And the only catch was that the final person has to sing their toast. (laughs) And that allows people to realize that it's less scary to give a toast than to sing their toast. It kind of (laughs) moves the night along. And we it was an experiment. And so we did it. And what was so beautiful about the night was that when people start sharing other parts of their lives and bond around identities that are surprising and unexpected, they think about you differently the next day when you're sort of getting to the meat of things, quote unquote, and it
0: completely primes them to show up differently the next day. You have a number of really extraordinary exercises in the art of gathering. I also was wondering if you would talk about the exercise, I am here. <laughs>
2: yes. Um, so when my husband and I first moved to New York, we didn't really know anybody here and we didn't know the city And so we started this experiment. I mean, we didn't even really think of it as a gathering at the beginning, but we just said, one day a weekend, we'll go to some neighborhood, we'll turn off our phones, and we'll walk around and explore it. And we told a friend about this, and she said, okay, I'm going to (laughs) come. And so the first time we did it, she invited a friend, and we chose Harlem as a neighborhood and first went to church, Abyssinian church and started to basically roam around Harlem and the Upper East Side of New York and talked and talked and talked and talked and, talked and um At the end of the day, it was 7 p.m., and we all left, and and we felt completely exhausted and completely rejuvenated and had a conversation with the four of us that was pretty spectacular. And so we just started doing it again and again, and the idea started spreading. And we've done it over 20 times in all types of different neighborhoods and themes. And you do these how often? We would do them, usually it ended up being about once a month, and I actually, we have not done them since I've had children. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that makes sense, especially since you have a 16-week-old. Yes, yes. Um, but we, we are saying that we want to start them again,
0: yeah. Uh, one notion that I loved in the book is something you picked up at a Japanese tea ceremony in Kyoto, the phrase, and I hope I get this right, ichigo ichi mm-hmm. And uh, this is the, um, it roughly translates to one meeting, one moment in your life that will never happen again. Mm-hmm. How has that Influence the way that you create gatherings. Mm-hmm. To
2: me, when I heard this phrase, it was, you know, it gave me goosebumps. It was so beautiful. And the tea master who I was speaking with, it was a woman, she said, you know, one of the things that I've learned from my masters is that even though, you know, the Japanese tea ceremony is a very structured ceremony, there's an order, it's a ritual, there's a way to do it. And one of the things that the master believed, this is one of the founders of the ceremony hundreds of years ago, was that even when you have the same identical form of a ritual or of a structure— it will never be the same two different times because the people who are in it are different. And so if you have a tea ceremony on Tuesday at 10 a.m. and then you have the same people involved in the tea ceremony the next week at 10 a.m., They are different people because of the last week of their life. And so what happens or how they're moved or what they think or how they believe may have changed and the dynamic between those people have changed. By the way, it may have also changed because they now have a memory of having a tea ceremony the week before. And so the meaning and the depth of the tea ceremony changes because they now have a relational memory to it. And similarly with gatherings, the reason this inspires me so much is because I think one of the reasons that our gatherings suffer is they can kind of seem kind of boring. You know, a birthday party has like candles and a cake or a board meeting has like a square table and a whiteboard behind it that we we kind of start attributing form. And one of the things that this Ichigo Ichi'i phrase reminded me of and always reminds me of is that you have this unique, crazy moment in time where people are coming together and you can create the future of this group live in real
0: time based on what happens between these people. It's incredible. You said that routine is the great enemy of a meaningful gathering. And I love that idea <laughs> that to constantly be trying to upend the norms that we expect. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know,
2: I. Um, One of the core ingredients is surprise and unexpectedness. And it can even be a small tweak. It can be the way you start a meeting differently. Or it can be the idea that you would have your birthday party and have everybody meet at a fishing dock at 5 a.m. to watch the fishermen come in. And that that could be a birthday party. And the idea that you can do
0: something different is really the core of the book. You talk about hosting in the book and recount the amazing way in which Ronald Heifetz starts his Mm -hmm. adaptive leadership class at the Harvard Kennedy School. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what that is like. Sure. So this
2: was a class shopping day at the Kennedy School where you can actually go and sit in classes for 20 minutes at a time or 45 minutes at a time to just test the class. So it's not even the actual class. So it's pretty high risk to hold a bold experiment with people who are trying to figure out if they want to take your class. So class starts, you know, the bell rings. And most teachers stand up and explain what the class would be. The more innovative ones give it give a lecture and actually model a class rather than talking about a class. But Ron Heifetz kind of blows the whole thing out of the water. And he sits on a chair, at least when I was there. He sat on a chair in front of the class and there's 90 students in a room staring at him. And he doesn't say anything. And you kind of sit there and watch him. And he's just staring into space. And a few seconds kind of go by. And everyone just sits there and continues to stare at him. And you're trying to figure out what's going on. Sounds s- like
0: a John Cage yeah, exactly, composition. <laughs> exactly.
2: And people start, you know, mumbling and there's some nervous laughter. And the teacher basically is not playing his role. And so all of a sudden, this entire group is kind of on edge and not really sure what they should do. And so this kind of popcorn-like conversation starts. And as far as I remember, you know, people say things like, "Uh, is this the class? Is he going to say something? Maybe this is what we're supposed to do. Are we supposed to talk to each other? Shh. Don't shush me. Well, he's about to talk. How do you know he's about to talk? And basically this group of strangers starts trying to navigate like what the hell are they supposed to do if there isn't a guardrail and the person who's supposed to be an authority, the host, the teacher, is abdicating his role? And I love this example. And and I've been, you know, three or four minutes into it, thank God, you know, everyone's deeply relieved when Professor Heifetz finally steps up and he says, "Welcome to adaptive leadership." And what he does is and he does this. I didn't take the class. (laughs) I just shopped the class. But what he does, as I understand it, over the course of the years, he creates all of these different dynamics and experiences where all of the scripts that we tend to follow, he pauses and he makes the implicit explicit, which is that in so many group contexts, we tend to follow scripts whether or not we want to. And the reason I started the chapter with this anecdote is because it's this beautiful, extreme example that shows how much we just assume and kind of go into autopilot on our, in our gatherings because we assume that there's a way to be. And when you actually pause and invite people to be another way, conflict can happen, but the most beautiful things can happen as well. You've said
0: that all of the people who are taking risks is what inspires you in life. <laughs> Why do you find that inspiring? I do too, but I, for I think for different reasons than you do. <laughs> Mostly because I don't have a, I have a real hard time with risk. <laughs>
2: um, I am in deeply inspired whenever I see people taking risks. Period, whether it's. Taking a job that kind of "quote unquote" makes no sense to anybody else, or whether it's speaking up in a room when your voice is shaking and continue to speak anyway, I feel very moved when I see people demonstrating courage. And to me, um, you know, I love it when I go to a gathering. I actually much prefer being a participant than a host. Much, much, much. Prefer Why is it. that? Um, in part because you actually have a lot of power as a guest, but it's unexpected power. And um, and I think one of the things that I is implicit in this book, I don't say it explicitly, is the art of gathering is not just for hosts. It's also how to be a better guest. And so often there's gatherings that in the moment can actually be improved, much improved, not by the host, but by the guest offering something. And so some of my favorite dinners are when, you know, at conferences, when a group of people get together and, and everyone's kind of chit-chatting, and then somebody just says, hey, you know, we don't really... Really know each other. Would you guys be up for answering a question? What if we all asked a question that would take us to a different level? And I love those moments because you're putting your neck out on the line. When anybody in a group or in a room tries to take a risk that helps people meaningfully connect despite the
0: awkwardness, I'm always very moved and very grateful. Priya, I have one last question for you. You dedicated the art of gathering to your husband, uh, the writer and commentator and sort of Resident Genius and on <laughs> Girdardas. He dedicated his book, The True American to You, and wrote on Facebook. This won't be the last book I dedicate to Priya Parker, but it is the first. <laughs> a book is a lot of wild rambling before it is actually a book. From the earliest days, Priya selflessly put aside whatever she was doing to listen to every word of this book out loud as I was writing it. Finish a page or two. Rita Priya. that was the ritual. It's impossible to imagine writing without her. <laughs> I talked to your husband about this as well. <laughs> so what is the dynamic like when you're the one writing the book?
2: One of the things that's been so beautiful writing this book is that I don't consider myself a professional writer. I think of myself as a professional facilitator that is trying to get my thoughts down. When I wrote this book, Anand was with me every step of the way and continued to basically say write how you talk. Don't write how you think you should write. And he, you know, helped me structure the book. He's edited the book, you know, many times. And to me, um, you know, marriage is, uh, we joke that our marriage is a lifelong dialogue, that it's just one long conversation. And this period of writing this book to me was very humbling because of how much he gave of himself, because it is his craft and it is his genius of how to string words together and um, to deeply learn what it actually takes to be interesting on a page, and you, know, you can judge for yourself whether I accomplished that, it was a very beautiful process to, um, to be witnessed and to be helped by him. And the other thing that was fun was he was also writing a book during this time. We also had two children during this time. And so one of our kind of daily rituals when we were both writing was to uh, write in a library in our neighborhood and then um, meet for lunch. And um, and eat and read or read or talk about what we were writing about, kind of refuel, and then go dive back into the books. And um, it was really beautiful to actually have a similar rhythm at a time where life has been very intense.
0: Well, that beauty is reflected in every page of your book. It's a book not just about the art of gathering, but the art of living fully, about purpose, about meaning, and about love. Mm, Thank you. Priya, thank you so much for such an enlightening conversation, and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
2: Thank you for having me. It's
0: such a pleasure. Priya Parker's new book is The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. You can see more of her work at priaparker.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.